Let's turn in the scriptures to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Today we're reading together Galatians 4, verses 8 through 20, the center section of this chapter. And we're doing more than just reading it, we're praying for God to shape our lives with it. The passage that we read is really the hinge of the letter. It's the hinge of the letter to the Galatians, and it's really the emotional heart of the letter, the hinge and the emotional heart. As we read these verses, you're going to get a sense for the heart of Paul. You're going to get a sense of his love, his grief, his agony. As I've tried to review just about every time that I've taught the letter and we've studied it, Paul wrote this letter to churches in Galatia. These were churches he had planted a few years earlier in the Galatian cities of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. You can read about the church planting trip in Acts 13 and 14. Many of these churches um, were converted, the, the, the congregations were made up of converted Jews and they faced heavy persecution when they converted to Jesus from their former communities. Many of them, a year or two later, after Paul had planted these churches, after they had been converted and formed into churches, many of them were being tempted to embrace a compromised religion that mixed Christianity and Judaism. We guess that probably the compromise would have lessened the persecution kind of like in the case of Hebrews. You go back to your former Judaism and you say, you know what, it's not all that bad. And it lessens the, the, the persecution, the pain. They were being tempted to embrace a compromise of you need Jesus and Moses. And Paul wrote this letter to keep them from that error because the law of Moses had no power to save them from sin and death. It had no power to transform their hearts. The law of Moses had no power to bless them instead of curse them, to give them the blessing promised to Abraham rather than the curse that was on them because of the failure to obey the law. That's what the letter is all about. So Paul in chapters 1 and 2 explains autobiographically that the gospel message he preaches comes from God and it's the only message by which a just God can declare sinners to be just in his presence. It is through Jesus who offered himself as the sacrifice in our place. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul explains theologically that the law of Moses was never intended by God to save anyone, but it was always intended by God to drive people to their need of Jesus, the promised Messiah for salvation. Here in the middle of chapter 4 then, Paul begins to plead, and it's where his practical commands, his counsel starts to come out. It's the hinge of the letter. It's the emotional heart of the letter. Listen to Paul plead with these precious young believers. He says, formerly, verse 8, this is Galatians 4, 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. We get something that Paul actually brings out much more in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, that behind false religion is false gods or demons. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, 
How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. He's probably referring to all of the regulations of the Jewish law that they had gone back to. And interestingly here again, he refers to their um, their shift as going back to the elementary principles of the world. Again, it's a challenging word to, to wrap our minds around or a phrase, but it probably refers to all of the power behind man-made religion. Escaping sin and death doesn't come from this world. It comes from outside the world, not from the powers from within the world, whether ours or, or demons or angels or anything. And then Paul expresses fear over their apparent defection. Verse 11, I'm afraid. I may have labored over you in vain. They're turning away from Christianity back to a Christless religion. It's really the end of the first paragraph of today's reading, and I just summarize it by Paul basically asking, like, do you really want to go back to being slaves again? If so, he says, my efforts are wasted. Verse 12, brothers, I entreat you. And this is really the point where Paul begins to give apostolic counsel. Many will say this is where he shifts from the theological explanations of the letter to the practical applications he says become as i am for i have also become as you are he basically is saying i put myself on your level on your turf to evangelize you now i want you to live like me free from bondage to the law and he recalls his time with them you did me no wrong you know it was because of a bodily ailment that i preached the gospel to you at first it's an interesting phrase. It's only a guess, but Paul may have had a bout with malaria that forced him from the more humid climate near the sea that he typically would have traveled, possibly to avoid the, the humidity and get into a less humid climate, a cooler climate, in the inland and more mountainous regions of Galatia. Again, it's a guess, but it may be that Paul had had a long bout with malaria that took him off of course into the region of Galatia where he ended up spending, up more, spending more than a year. And Paul remembers, verse 14, even though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't scorn or despise me. Instead, you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus himself. He remembers the care that they showed for him when he was so sick. And he commends them for the way they treated him as a representative of the Messiah. It actually helps us understand what Paul is saying here when he says, you treated me like an angel. I mean, you treated me like Jesus himself. It's helpful to interpret Paul's words if you just remember that Jesus told his disciples as his ambassadors, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever rejects you rejects me. Paul understood that he had this status as an ambassador, and the Galatians showed him the kind of respect that was due an ambassador of King Jesus. But then on this basis, the way they had cared for him so deeply when he was with them. It's on this basis then that his tone shifts in verse 15. What then has become of your desire to bless me? For I testify to you that if possibly 
you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Based on this verse and chapter 6, verse 11, it's very likely that Paul lived with poor eyesight. He says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth, the truth of the gospel? The way I'd summarize the second of three portions of today's passage is just Paul's basically pleading with them. How did you go from loving me so deeply, respecting me so highly, to treating me like an enemy? What have I done to you? It's a good question. In the final portion of today's passage, Paul then pinpoints what's actually going on. He identifies the problem, and it's the teachers of the false gospel who are attracting these young Galatian believers. He points to them, they, verse 17, pointing to the false teachers. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, or another translation says, they want to alienate you from us. That's the sense. Alienate you from us so that you make much of them. Interesting. You might put in the margin of your Bible, flattery. That is the very definition of flattery. Complimenting others, not because you love them so much and want to build them up with encouragement, but because you have selfish intent. You want them to think highly of you. These false teachers were flatterers. So Paul reasons very foundationally and powerfully. Verse 18. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. I would encourage you to think Uh, look at different translations of that. A much simpler translation is, it's always good to be zealous for what's good. I'm going to make much of that phrase toward the end of the message today. It's always good to be zealous for what's good. And always, not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, How I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. That's where we'll end the reading. This final portion is really most jarring. Paul asks, basically, how would you compare the the thing that drives, the end goal of the false teachers, with the thing that drives me? What's their end goal? What's my end goal? And he says... I'm in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul is in pain as he writes. He likens the pain to a pregnant woman's labor pains because he's questioning whether the conversions of these young Galatian believers is genuine and is going to endure or whether it's fake, whether it's substanceless and is going to end In just a few short days, temporary faith is no faith at all, as Jesus taught in the parable of the sower. Paul ends this portion with painful perplexity over what has changed in these churches to make them turn on him and on his message. Here's how I'd summarize what's going on here, the main idea. It pains gospel ministers to see Christians drift from the true gospel. And those who are drifting must be reminded of the freedom that the gospel offers. You see this idea centrally in verse 12, 
when Paul issues his first counsel, his first command, when he says, become as I am. Live like me. I am free from the shackles of the law. Be like me. He means enjoy the freedom of the gospel, the freedom that the gospel provides. Enjoy it as I do. Paul wants them to experience, to live out, to enjoy the freedom that the gospel gives to all those who trust Jesus. He doesn't want them to live under the slavery, the bondage of false religion. In each of the three sections that I've read, I see one dominant freedom that I want to work out. I'm going to work through the first two fairly briefly and then spend a little bit more time with the third. The freedoms that the gospel offers first involve the freedom of knowing God. Verses 8 through 11, the gospel offers the freedom of knowing God. It's here that Paul contrasts the Galatians before and after their conversion. Before following Jesus, they were enslaved to false and weak and worthless religion. They did not know God, he says, but through faith in Jesus, verse 9 says, you have come to know God. This is what Christianity fundamentally is, and so many people are confused about it. Christianity is fundamentally about a personal relationship with God, a reconciled relationship with God. It's about knowing the God who made you. It's about knowing the God who gave you life. It's about knowing the God who is your judge. Do you personally know him? Do you know God? As soon as Paul says to them in verse 9, you've come to know God, he immediately clarifies, or rather, come to be known by God. Because although the gospel truly does bring you to know God, it's actually God's initiative that brings you into a relationship with him. I could illustrate it. This is pretty much true of any prestigious individual. Think of a business mogul, a popular professional athlete, a politician, a celebrity. Having a relationship with that person is not really contingent about on whether or not you want to know them. It has everything to do with whether they want to know you. And the gospel message is just this. It's a message about God's initiative. God in eternity past put into force a plan to rescue people from the rebellion he knew that they would go headlong into. God knew that, and God put a plan into place to rescue people. God revealed himself in Scripture. Have you ever stopped to consider that if God had not revealed himself in this Bible, we would only know that there is a God, there's a mighty God who created everything, but we have no clue who he is or how to be in a relationship with him. All we would be doing is guessing we would be throwing darts at a target we can't see. But God wanted to be known. It's why he gave us the word. The gospel message is about God taking the initiative and sending his son to die in the place of sinners and then sending his spirit to convict and regenerate sinners and forever unite believers to his son. God does it. It's God's initiative. So I ask again, 
Do you personally know God through his son? Is that how you fundamentally think about religion or Christ, the, the, the Christian religion? Is that how you fundamentally think about it? It is about personally knowing God. Or do you think of religion a bit more like Paul describes in verse 11? It's all about observing holidays. We would say in our day, Christmas and Easter and Christmas and Easter. Or the way the Jews thought about it, it's all about Sabbaths and Passovers and this feast and that feast. Christianity is not about the rules and regulations of required religious holidays. It's about the freedom of a reconciled relationship with God. And so I issue a call to any here who may not have ever committed yourself to Jesus. Do you realize that he was crucified for you and he rose again? That he is the ascended king? That he is God's chosen king to rule forever on earth? Do you understand that he's the Messiah and he has provided a way only, the only way, it's the only way that you can be reconciled to God, that you can personally know God? And have you called on Jesus to save you? If you have not, I urge you, call on him. Commit your life to him. Trust him. Turn to Jesus. The gospel is about the freedom of a reconciled relationship with God. It's not the slavery of religious rules and regulations. Paul says you need to understand the freedom that the gospel offers. Secondly, the gospel offers the freedom of loving others out of love for Christ. It's in these central verses, verses 12 to 16, that Paul again contrasts how the Galatians had once received him with love and respect, even as he was at his lowest, sickliest point. He demanded so much of their time and attention, and yet they loved showering it on him. The Galatians received his message, and they received Paul himself, the messenger, as the message of Jesus and as the ambassador of the Lord Jesus. But now they were drifting from the message, and Paul basically asks toward the end of this little section, why are you treating me like an enemy? It's like your hearts have closed up to me. Your hearts that had at one point been so wide open to me, why are they now all shriveled up and closed and hardened toward me? Paul is trying to help them see the difference between the openness of their hearts and the closedness of their hearts. And in doing so, he's essentially saying, fundamentally saying, the gospel, it is the gospel, it is the message of Christ that frees you to love others for Christ's sake. And this is particularly visible in the church. It should be. Obviously, it is not perfect. But it should be here, sincerely, truly. We should look at each other. It's what we're going to be reminded of in a few minutes at the Lord's Supper. We should look at each other and say, I love you because of Jesus. I love you because you belong to Jesus. And Jesus has promised every believer, if you give even a cup of cold water to a brother or sister in need, it's like you're doing it to me. You care for my family, you're caring for me, and you're going to be rewarded. The gospel frees us to love other people 
Not on the basis of what they do or don't do for us, but on the basis of their belonging to Christ. They're precious to Christ. It's not the slavery of hating people who've done us wrong. No, the gospel frees us. It's not the slavery of living in your own little bubble and ignoring all the people with problems. No, Paul came into them and they took care of him at great expense to themselves. The gospel frees us from an inward, self-focused heart that doesn't let anybody else in. It's saying, I'm going to love you. I'm going to be committed to loving you because you belong to Jesus. Third and finally, the gospel offers the freedom of, I just call it, craving good. Here in verses 17 to 20, Paul contrasts the false teacher's end goal with his own end goal. And simply put, the false teachers wanted the Galatian Christians to be alienated from Paul and to give their full allegiance to them. And that's why the false teachers flattered the Galatians, so that the Galatians would fawn over them. These are the people who really care about me. Paul doesn't. I had to care for him. These people... They stroke my ego. I'm going to fawn over these false teachers. And this is the sort of motivation that drives false religion. It is rampant in false religion. It is a sort of what I would call territorialism mixed with self-promotion. And it is sickeningly rampant in evangelical churches as well. It's disgusting. It's the seeking of religious groupies. Disgusting. It's slavery, not freedom. And this should be clarifying for every Christian, for every church, for every pastor. The goal of true ministry is not numbers or applause. It's not to amass the greatest number of disciples and make sure that those disciples never leave and never think ill of you. No. True ministry is not territorial. And it's not self-aggrandizing. No. True ministries, they look like Paul. We want people to follow the apostolic teaching. The gospel, the one true gospel. And we want people to live in the power of the Spirit, whether it's in this church or that church. We want gospel-preaching churches to flourish. Our zeal is not for numbers and praise and news headlines. Here at Tri-County, we try to communicate this in our new members orientation. We try to continually address it in our leaders' meetings. We try to emphasize it in our public announcements and prayer. We want to be continually praying for ministries around us and ministries farther away from us and ministries on the other side of the globe. We want to pray for them to grow. We want them to experience God's blessing more than we experience God's blessing. We want them to have influence and great influence. We want God's blessing on them. It's not an us versus them turf war with other gospel preaching churches in our area. We're not in a competition. We're not territorial. We're not self-aggrandizing. That 
is the end goal of the false teachers. That's why they flatter, so that people fawn over them and never leave them and go anywhere else. No, that's not true religion. What really is Paul's end goal? What should be our end goal? This is where I zero in on verse 18, like I said I would. And I'm going to riff on this for a little bit. I don't think the ESV translation is really strong here. It reads, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. I hope they correct that in years ahead. The word that's translated to be made much of means to be jealous for, to be deeply committed to, to set your heart on, to show great interest in, to be deeply concerned about. That's why most English translations translate it as zealous, to be zealous for. The simplest translation that I could give to this brief phrase is, it's good to be zealous for what's good. It's good to be zealous for good. Always, not just when I'm there, Paul says, always. This is really interesting. We might too quickly read past this little phrase. Paul's end goal is not territorialism, it's not numbers. Paul's end goal is believers whose hearts are always craving what's good. That's why I have Titus 2.14, Titus 1.8, Titus 3.1, Titus 3.8, Titus 3.14, because he expresses similar objectives in these passages. That's what I want my ministry. That's what I want our congregation and really every gospel preaching congregation to be all about. Tri-County, my goal for you is to be always zealous for good. Whether you're here or whether you're there, I want you to always be zealous for good. It's good to always be zealous for good. Let me just describe this to you in big picture terms. You say, Joe, what are you all about? Really, what's this whole church all about? I want you to wake up each day And I want your first prayer of the day to be, God, please be glorified. I want to love you today with all my heart, and I want to love others more than I naturally love myself, and it's only through your spirit that that's going to happen. That's what I want for you. Have a heart that's zealous for loving God and others. That's good. I want you to go to bed each night praising God. Today was an undeserved gift from me. I'm not entitled to any of the good gifts you gave me. And God, I'm going to hope in you for the future. That's good. I want you to love God's good gifts and receive them with thankfulness. I want you to receive your food with thankfulness to God because you're not entitled to them. That's good. Love, praise, hope, thankfulness. I want you to be zealous for that. I want you to live with no guilt in life and no fear in death. That's good. I want you to experience stormy trials of life with hope and peace and an undercurrent of joy 
that can't be taken from you. I want you to be content with what you have. I want you to be disciplined in your financial stewardship, generous for the gospel's advance, and always looking to God and not your money for security. That's good. I want you to be marked by self-control, especially in your tongue, so that your words build others up and never try to deceive others or tear them down. That's good. I want you to be zealous for good. I want you to be marked by purity. That you would reject every sugar-coated poison pill of temptation and crave what is truly beautiful and virtuous. That's good. If you're married, I want you to be faithful and self-sacrificial to your spouse. If you're a parent, I want you to be a faithful, controlled, nurturing parent. That's good. I want you to engage in honest, hard work rather than laziness. I want you to do all of your work as to the Lord. And I want you to be salt and light wherever you work, whether it's the four walls of your home or whether it's on the road somewhere. Be salt and light in your workplace. That's good. I want you to be a citizen who pays your taxes and honors the leaders that God's put in place because they've been put there by your sovereign God. I don't want you to be a person who craves negative talk and always complains. You to trust God. That's good. I want you to be a friend to others, especially those in your church community, those who share your commitment to Jesus. Be committed to them. Love them. Pray for them. Rejoice with them. Cry with them. That's good. I don't want you to be a person who's irritable and bitter. Instead, I want you to be always willing to forgive and patiently await the vengeance of the Lord when you're wronged. That's good. I want you to be a humble person, a prayerful person, not self-dependent, but going to the Lord with your needs, trusting him. I want you to be humble and correctable, repentant when you're wrong. That's good. I want you to be heroic in endurance. I don't want you to be a tragic defector when trials get too hard. Through all the trials God allows you to experience, I want you to endure. I want that for you. That's good. And I want you to live with the hope of glory that you're eventually going to experience the glory of God, life in the very presence of the Lord, life without the curse. You're going to experience glory. I want you to live with the hope of glory. That's good. You say, Joe, what's your end goal? What is Tri-County's end goal? It's whether you're here or anywhere else that you'd be marked by love and thankfulness and stewardship, and generosity, and self-control, and faithfulness, and self-sacrifice, honesty, hard work, diligence, friendship, true commitment, forgiveness, humility, prayerfulness, endurance, hope. That's what I want for you. That's the whole point. I almost never yell like that. I pray you never forget it. 
This is what it's all about. It's not about growing in numbers. It's not about getting people to stroke your ego. It's about good. And let me get down to the very end because this is where it all ties together in the letter to the Galatians. You ready for this? Through the one gospel that Paul preached, through the one gospel that Paul preached is the only way that you can arrive at this good destination. I'd put it like this. The gospel is the message of God the Father who gives God the Son to die in the place of condemned lawbreakers and unleashes in every believer the power of God the Spirit. Embracing that message is the only way to restore sinners to be very good as we were originally created. It's good to always be zealous for good. Do you see that Christianity isn't even a religion like most people use the term religion? Of course, there are what you might call rituals. We have gatherings, and in our gatherings we have prayers and songs and readings and sermons. And if, you, if that's what you mean by religion, okay. But Christianity isn't a list of rules and regulations. What is Christianity all about? It's just human life as God intended it to be. It's a life of knowing God, of loving him and loving others. It's about hospitality and care for people because they belong to God. It's about being zealous for what's good. And the only thing that can change your heart so that you are zealous about what's good, the only thing that can change your heart is the gospel. The one gospel that Paul preached. That's the one thing in the world that can shape your life to be very good as God originally intended it. Let's pray together. Oh God, I pray that we would be shaped by you in your word. That we would enjoy the freedoms that the gospel gives. That we would enjoy knowing you. That we would enjoy the freedom that we have not to shut others out, but to commit ourselves in love to others. And God, I pray that we would enjoy the freedom of craving what's good. Your spirit is at work in us to produce love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and meekness and self-control. Oh God, keep working in us. Zeal for what's good, always. For Jesus' glory and our good, I pray. Amen.